that, that it caused the Christians to scatter into areas outside of Jerusalem. But we also saw that as they went, they took the gospel with them. They took this good news of who Christ is and what Christ had done with them, and they spread it into the specific area we're looking at is Samaria, and it will continue outward from there. We saw how it worked so well that it's almost like somebody had planned it. And we're reminded that God had, that, that Jesus had already told them that this would go exactly as it has gone, that they would receive the Spirit in Jerusalem and be His witnesses, and then into Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. We're reminded that Although bad things that we don't understand happen, difficult trials and circumstances come, but nothing ever catches God off guard. And that He always has a plan, and all things are part of His perfect plan. We also saw the specific example of Philip who was preaching to the people of Samaria, and that's where we're going to pick back up this morning. In Samaria... But Luke takes a moment to tell us about another man in Samaria, a specific man named Simon who was well-known and well-respected in Samaria, and that's where our text will start today. So look with me in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here Luke begins by telling us about Simon, but just to really make sure we're grasping the overall context, he's not just talking about Simon, he's not just going to tell us what the apostles did in a little bit, he's explaining to us this big picture trajectory of the gospel, of these witnesses of Christ from Jerusalem into these other areas. And so what he's really doing is, is showing here the impact that the gospel has whenever it gets to Samaria, which would have been really surprising. We talked about this Wednesday night. We spent the whole night talking about uh, the background between the Samaritans and these Jewish, now Christians, but Jewish background people like Philip, like the apostles, that are preaching the gospel to them. So these are like hated enemies, the Samaritans and the Jews. These are people that have uh, been at odds with one another for hundreds of years, that used to see themselves as part of the same family and the same nation, but now see themselves as completely different. And so the fact that we see these Jewish converts, these Christians going and preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, and it having an impact speaks to the power of the gospel. It speaks to the power of our God working in the lives of broken people. But here we see specifically about Simon. And so Luke tells us a good bit about this guy. He tells us he's a magician, uh, that he's practiced magic in the city, and that when he did, it amazed the people of Samaria. So you kind of get the picture here of this guy who is well-known. You go anywhere in Samaria, you go anywhere in the city, and the people know who Simon is. Simon not only practices magic, but he refers to himself as somebody great. 
And obviously, he was really good at what he did because the other people, the rest of the people of Samaria, agree with him. They don't just call him great. They call him the power of God that is called great, as Luke tells. So we, we don't know. That's a, a popular question. Could he... Was he able to practice what we would call black magic, like magic that's empowered by demonic forces? Or was he just a good charlatan that had really tricked everybody with sleight of hand? We don't know. We don't know the answer to that. But we know this. Whatever he did, he did it well because he fascinated these people. They were all enamored with Simon. That's the picture that Luke paints for us here. But I think that Luke, and you might would ask, why in the world would Luke, in the middle of this teaching about the impact of the gospel stopped to tell us about this magician that everybody was amazed by. And I really believe that what Luke is doing uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here is building this contrast. There, he's showing us on the one hand what you find when you go to Samaria before the gospel was there. You went to Samaria and you would have found everybody amazed by Simon. Simon was the power of God who was called great, and they're all enamored with this guy, and they're all captivated by what he can do. And then he begins verse 12 by saying, but. And we start to see this strong contrast. He says, but when they believed Philip, and he tells us what it is that Philip was preaching to them that they believed. Look with me in verse 12. It says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. And so he starts out with a few verses about Simon and how people are following Simon. Hey, Jed. Jed. Just a second. She called him. Round of applause. Good job. She got him. Uh, so he starts out with a few verses about Simon and talks about Simon, how everybody's enamored by Simon. And then he gives us this this conjunction, this, this phrase, however, in some translations. And then he starts to talk about what people are believing now. And what is it that could have come in that was so impactful, that, that had such a captivating uh, effect that people were willing to turn from Simon and to the point that Simon himself even becomes saved. And he tells us here what it is, is this teaching about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Those two things are key for us to understand this morning. What is this kingdom of God? What is the name of Jesus Christ? What is it that Philip is preaching that when people hear it, that they respond, and they respond by changing who they are, and they respond by giving their life to Christ. And the kingdom of God, and I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole as far as I would like to, but the kingdom of God, suffice it to say, is a theme that we see all throughout the Scriptures. A beautiful theme, and, and it begins in Genesis, and it runs literally all the way through the book of Revelation. But we see it's, it's the first thing that Jesus teaches about. In Matthew four seventeen. it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So the first thing that Jesus preaches about is the kingdom. He talks about it over 50 times just in the book of Matthew. And here is what Philip is talking about to these Samaritans. So what is this idea of the kingdom of God? Well, it's, it's not as when we hear kingdom, we probably, at least I do, think of like a physical place. This is the kingdom of whatever, Great Britain, the kingdom of, or the nation of, and whenever we hear nation, it's what we think of. But the kingdom of God 
It's talking about the reign of God, the rule of God, the authority of God, the sovereignty of God over the things that are part of his kingdom. So it's talking about God as the reigning, ruling king, where we get the idea of the kingdom. And so he goes in there, and they've been amazed by the power of Simon, but Philip comes in and says, let me tell you about the power of God. Let me tell you about the rule and the authority and the ability of God. And then it says the name of Jesus, and y'all like, Brother Zach, you can stop right there. We understand what a name is, right? We all know what, but, and many of you have probably heard this before, the idea of a name as we see it in Scripture isn't literally just the word. It's, it's the character of a person that's represented by their name. And, you, and all of you understand this. I can say the names of some people that have served here in the past, right? I could say uh, Chris or Celeste George. I can say Danny Forrest. I can say Tim McCaffrey. And those are names, right? They're names. But when I say that name, you don't literally think of the letter C-H-R-I-S or T-I-M. No, you think of those people, right? You think of memories. You think of their personality, you think of their character, you think of who they are. And when we see in the scripture that somebody's talking about the name of God, that's what they're referring to. They're talking about the character of Jesus Christ, what he's like. And that's what Philip is preaching. He's preaching about the rule and the ability and the authority and the sovereignty of God, and he's talking about the reputation and the character of Jesus Christ. So he's telling them about this one that is over everything, and who is the overarching king, but who loves them enough that he stepped into time and came and died in their place because he loves them. Right? This one that made them, and even though they've rebelled against them, wants to reconcile themselves to him and to have a relationship with them. He's talking to them about the lion and the lamb. Right? That's what he's telling. He's telling them all these things, and as he does, they respond. And they believe because of the work of God in their life. They believe this truth and they're baptized and these Samaritans become believers. Point one this morning is this. Nothing compares to God. I believe it's really the overarching point that we see here. Again, Acts, what Luke is really doing for us here. He's given us a recounting of what happened. But I really believe it's the thrust of this text is that we're seeing this contrast between Another domain between another kingdom, between the things of this world and the things of God. And we see that even when you take the great and amazing and and captivating things of this world, that they don't hold a candle to our God. Simon himself even believes, it tells us here. We, We hear about this God who is powerful and authoritative, but also gentle and kind and patient. And it changes these people changes them forever. God changes them and calls them to himself. And then in verse 14, we see what almost seems like, if we're looking at this the wrong way, a, a, a parenthetical note, like, like Luke's just putting in parentheses. Also, let me tell you this, but remember, the whole thrust of this is showing us what happens when the gospel gets to Samaria. So the people believe and the people respond And word of that gets back to Jerusalem, right? The apostles, were told, had stayed in Jerusalem when the Christians spread. When they were scattered, the apostles stayed there. And so these apostles who are strong witnesses to Christ, who are the foundation of this New Testament church, they hear this, and we see their response in verse 14. 
It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what we see here, let me go ahead and be clear, we believe, our best understanding is that this is a special circumstance. Right? Whenever we look at the, the breadth of the New Testament teaching, when we see uh, the first time that Peter is preaching to the people in Acts 2.38, we see that the regular pattern is that when people repent and believe that they receive the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts 10. We see that in Galatians 3. We see that in many different places. And this appears to be a special circumstance, that these people repent and believe and are baptized, but they don't immediately receive the Holy Spirit. And so the question we ask when we see something that's out of the norm, that's a special circumstance, is why? Why in the world would this special circumstance happen here? Why would God withhold the Holy Spirit for a time from the Samaritans when they become believers? And there are lots of different beliefs about this. There are a lot of different really good, scripturally based ideas as to why this is. I'm not going to run through all of them this morning. I'm going to give you the one that I believe is most feasible. I'll also show you why I think it's most feasible. But understand that this is a, a hypothesis out of many hypotheses. What we do know is that this is the truth, that, that for some reason God withholds the Spirit until Peter and John come and pray over these believers, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. We do know that. Why does that happen? I believe it's because the Samaritans, I told you a minute ago, I really don't think we can grasp how shocking this would have been, that the Samaritans... To these Jewish people, to these Jewish background Christians, for them to hear that the Samaritans have submitted and become believers of Christ would have been absolutely shocking. I really, I've, I struggled to come up with some idea that I think, I mean, I think it would have to go to the extent of you and I hearing that some strong, militant, Islamic leader is now saluting the flag or is praising Jesus Christ. I mean, it would have to be something where you would say, there's no way. I cannot believe it unless I see it. And even if I see it, I may not believe it. Something to that level, something to that extent. I believe that's how these Jewish people would have responded. So when they hear, they say, no, we're sending Peter and John to check this out. So Peter and John, these apostles show up. And when the apostles get there, these apostles who, again, are the cornerstone of this New Testament church after Christ, right? Christ is the chief stone. He's the cornerstone. But then the church is built on the witness of these apostles, right? God uses them. He speaks to them through the Holy Spirit, and they're writing the New Testament, and they're leading the people, and they're teaching the people. So he allows them to get there to see with their own eyes that this is in fact real. That these Samaritans have accepted Jesus Christ and that God has accepted them, which is what this pouring out of the Holy Spirit would have been, was confirmation that this is real. These people are truly believers. These are truly part of God's family. And so for these apostles to be there for that, to be able to tell the rest of the church to testify that this is real. When you hear that the Samaritans are now Christians, that is true. The impact of that would have been great. And so I believe, 
to the best of my understanding, that that's why God withheld the Spirit here until the apostles got there, is so that they could serve, so that they could see with their own eyes, and they could serve as witnesses that this is the work that God's really doing. God is saving the Samaritans now. God is bringing the Samaritans in to be part of the family, part of our family. We are all brothers and sisters now. It would have been vastly important. Now, just real quickly, let me tell you why I believe that. Why do I believe that's the case here? And if you turn over just a couple of pages to Acts chapter 10, we see another circumstance similar to this. When there's a new group of people that are believing for the first time, these are the Gentiles when they're first becoming believers, and we see this in Acts 10, verse 44. It says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now you hear how that's written? These Jewish believers, right, the circumcised believers, these believers were amazed that God would give the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. They were shocked that even Gentiles were allowed to become Christians. But they believe it. They believe it because they see it. And whenever Peter is telling about this, when he's telling this episode to the church, he sounds amazed too. Look just one chapter over in chapter 11. Beginning in verse 13, he tells, he's telling the church how this all went down. In verse 13, he says, And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So right, Peter says, I was so amazed that when I saw this, that I knew that this was what God was doing, how could I stand in the way? And it says the church was silent. And they said, well, then to the Gentiles as well. If God has given the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, then they have repentance that leads to eternal life. And so in that instance, it was so shocking that the Gentiles had become believers that Peter's witnessing to it was important for the church. And I believe it's the same thing that we see here. It's so shocking, it's so surprising that the Samaritans are becoming believers that God allows Peter and John to witness it with their own eyes so that they can go back and explain it to the church. So what's a point that we grasp from this? What's something that we take away from this? Well, point two, as a matter of application, is that all believers are God's children. And, and in my notes, I have in parentheses after that, no matter what. Because sometimes it's easy, as long as the believers look like us, and sound like us, and live like us, and sing the songs that we sing, and live in the same socioeconomic status as us, and both the same way as us, it's easy to say, well, sure, sure they're Christians. But when they start to look different, or sound different, or speak a different language, or vote a different way, sometimes we start to get skeptical, and we say, well, I don't know if they're really Christians. Which, 
these people, it would have been easy for them to say, well, I don't know that, the, I don't know that God... Yeah, the Samaritans might believe in God, but I don't know that God's really accepting the Samaritans. But no, God sends the Spirit and makes clear, these are my children as well. And then later, to the Gentiles, they would have said, there's no way God's accepting the Gentiles and His family. But we see the truth. God sent the Holy Spirit. They are witnesses to it. And they said, we can't believe it, but it has to be true. In the same way, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded, and sometimes I think that we can be picky and choosy about who we would share the gospel with or who we would invite to church, who we would share the word of God with, but we need to be reminded today that God has called all people to himself, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people that look like all types of things, that live in all types of ways, that none of us are deserving of his grace, but that he's willing to give it to all that will respond and so we see that truth. How do we know that somebody's a Christian? Do they believe in God? Have they received the Holy Spirit? Is their life showing fruit? Then we know they're a Christian. Can't tell by what they look like or what they sound like. It's by their response. It's by whether or not they've responded in faith to Jesus Christ. We see that here in this text. And then he turns his attention, Luke 4, back to Simon in these last few verses. Verse 18 now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So here we see Simon again, right? Simon the magician, he sees these, holy, these apostles lay their hands and pray, and these people receive the Holy Spirit, and he says, I want in on that. I want to be, so he says, look, Peter, let me give you this money, and y'all give me this ability, and Peter is furious. And Peter rebukes him in a way that few people are rebuked in the scriptures. And, and he just goes on and on with this rebuke. And, and it leads some people to believe that Simon didn't ever truly believe. But Luke doesn't lay that out clearly. I can't tell you whether Simon was truly a Christian or not. But I can tell you this. That we again here see this comparison and this contrasting with the things of this world and the things of God. Because if this were a worldly thing, then yes, power or influence or money would be able to obtain it, right? If this is something that people are selling and Simon the magician, who's probably pretty rich and he's, he's well-known, comes up and says, let me give you money and you give me this, they'd have said, absolutely. But we see here that the things of God are different. The things of God are not for sale, brothers and sisters. The things of God are not for, they're not dependent on how much money somebody has. They're not dependent on how much power somebody has, how much influence somebody has. But they're based on what we see here in verse 21, the reason that he was not given part of this. Peter said, you have neither, have, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. 
And brothers and sisters, the things of God are given because of true belief and repentance. Our hearts being right before God. So point three, the last point, the things of God are unlike anything else. That's why the title of this sermon is Not for Sale. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder that while all the things of this world may be for sale, they may be for the rich and the powerful, the things of God are not. We even see it in Jesus. Jesus was not a king in the sense that we would expect of powerful and rich and influential, but of humble and of serving and of loving and of meekness and of kindness. I think that Luke is once again painting this contrast for us. There's a Christmas song that, that I've come to love over the years. Amanda has sang it for a few years, and Brother Shane has sang it here at Mount Zion as well. And, and the name of the song is How Many Kings. Many of you are probably somewhat familiar with it. And as I hear this, as I see this, as I see Simon, who is so used to the things of this world, coming and saying, let me buy this gift, and being rebuked sharply and being told, that's not how God works. This week it's made me think of this song. I want to read to you, read, not sing, just a little part of it. The chorus says this, How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me, only one did that for me. And brothers and sisters, this is the truth of the gospel. Only one did that for us. And there's only one way that we are His children. There's only one way to become a child of God, and it's not through power, and it's not through influence, and it's not through works. It's not through our ability to try to be better than we've been before. But it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear about that. That's how we become God's children. That's how we can receive the Holy Spirit. That's how we can get to this place. Is recognizing the kingdom of God. Recognizing how different He is. It's, it's recognizing the name and the character of Jesus Christ. Recognizing that in opposition to everything we've ever known, that He is the one that created all things, but that also takes care of every blade of grass and every sparrow. That He is the one that has sovereign rule over everything and still listens to every prayer that we pray. He is the one that is both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain. So I ask you this morning, have you ever come to the place that you recognized this truth? That you recognized it and believed it in a way that God has worked in your heart and, and convicted you of your sin and that you have repented and given your life to Him? Have you ever come to that place before? Do you understand what it is that we're talking about this morning? And if you don't, I would love to talk to you about it a little bit more. Let me know. Let's set up a time that we can talk. If you want to pray about it this morning, we're going to have a time of response in just a minute. And I would love to pray with you about it. But also this morning, I ask, if you are God's child and you know that you're His child, are you 
living a life that shows that he's different? Are you telling other people about the kingdom of God? Are you telling them about the name and the character and reputation and the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ that came and died for them? Both the people that you think need to hear it and the people that you don't. Because we're not ones. We're not the ones that can decide who needs to hear the gospel. We've been sent to share it to all. And just like these brothers, we might be amazed at who would respond to the gospel if we share it with them. So this morning I want to invite you to stand, and our, our response song is going to be a little different than normal. We're going to sing part of The Lion and the Lamb.